As a community, we've been opening up our hearts and minds to God's word together, uh, studying the gospel of Mark. And so we've reached chapter 9. And while you're turning there, I just want to remind you that we are going to be hosting Family Promise here in the next week or two. And we need at least six more people to help out with that. And if you don't know what Family Promise is, it's where we open up the church house to house women and children who are in between houses. And Family Promise is an organization that helps facilitate that. Different churches, uh, you know, throughout the city so that they can kind of get a hand up. And so we just need people to help be hospitable, to host, and sometimes to spend the night uh, just to be a resource for them here. It's, it's something that's a really great opportunity for us to be disciples of Jesus and interact with people in our world who have some need. And so you're welcomed into that. If you feel like it's on your heart to do that, just email Brittany Burrell. It's two B's in her email, two R's and two L's. It's pretty easy, B Burrell um, at Crossroads. And so, and I always like to say at this point, if you want to be a part of this and send that email, you can send it in two words. I'm in. If you send that to Brittany, she'll know what you're talking about. We would love to uh, partner with you to serve these people um, in a couple weeks. Mark chapter 9. In verse uh, 30, it is situated in a very interesting part of Mark to me. Mark is a pretty crazy writer. I think uh, a lot of people over the years have relegated the gospel of Mark to, you know, uh, kind of a choppy, thrown-together piece of material when the reality is he's one of the most brilliant writers using all kinds of different techniques and styles to communicate uh, various messages, like repetition or, uh, of certain words, or like jaggedly putting things together, or, or slowing the narrative down to like, like what we're going to see today, Jesus like reaching his arms around somebody. And when, you, when you're brought into that, it's just a really beautiful way of writing. One of the things that he also does is he brackets stories with other stories in order to bring them together or illustrate a larger point. He'll do this with a word or a phrase that you'll find over here. He'll tell you a story or two, and then you'll find that word or phrase again. And it's meant to sort of tie that together in a larger meaning. He'll do that with a story, you know, a story where Jesus is like going to go somewhere with somebody. And then on the way, there's two or three stories, and then the other one completes. And they're all meant to be seen together. In this case, in chapter 8 and in chapter 10, there is a story of blindness being healed by Jesus. And so I take this to mean that there's something signaled in, in, in this bracketed space that Mark wants to illustrate blindness through. So I'm asking questions, like what about this section indicates uh, caution about spiritual blindness? And what is this teaching about how we can like contribute to not being able to see what Jesus is doing in this world and where he wants to take us and how he wants to do this? So, so those are good questions to be asking of these stories. You can see some intentionality behind the cycle or the pattern that he places in, in these three chapters. You have um, three times Jesus makes a statement about him going to the cross to die. Three times you have the disciples displaying inability to receive that message. 
And three times you have Jesus honing in on why that's important or what that look, will look like if they were to receive that message and apply it to their lives. So when we're talking about what the path to the cross will look like in our lives, what are some ways that we can be blind to that path or to, to not see the beauty and the uh, inspiration that's behind all of that. And so these are all things that I'm working through as I'm kind of reading through these stories and welcome you into that with me. And so, yeah, with that, I'd like to read to you from Mark 9 and verse 30, if you would stand with me. They had left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus didn't want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. And he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. When they came to Capernaum, he was in the house, and he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them and taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me doesn't welcome just me, but the one who sent me. These are the very words of God. Amen. Might as well get this out of the way now. We did not plan to have the children's ministry announcement on the uh, bullseye verse for helping out with the kids, okay? So, but if the Lord's trying to tell you something, at the same time, I'm not going to stop it. Just don't want to be perceived as coercive. <laughs> this is a very meaningful um, text to me as Jesus takes someone who has just no social capital, the children. They have no rights. They have no legal rights in their time until they're a certain age. And they have no ability to speak into larger weightier matters of things that are around. They're just... They're just low on the totem pole, and so he centers them. Who, who might that be? And he says, receive them, welcome them, and then and you received them, you received me. And it just struck me this week as I was thinking about this verse. It's me. I mean, it's so much my story when I came to this church in 2007. I had less than zero social capital going for me, okay? I say less than zero. It was a negative because the way I looked, all right? It was very counterproductive, all right? And so uh, Grand Rapids was a lot more business casual back then. Some of you are here. I'm looking around the room. And I just say thank you so much for welcoming me into your life, into this group. And I, I just identify with this so much, and I just think this is such a great picture of the kingdom. 
One of the things that it challenges for me as you read these stories is um, something prevalent in our age, which is self-worship. Who's the greatest? Who do we focus our attention on? Um, what drives our fears and, and how does that work? We live in a time where like the self in the center of the story is such a prevalent reality. I was watching Survivor this week. Any Survivor fans? I hear a couple of you, all right? Don't vote me out. And uh, I just was struck by a line. This person was debating whether or not they wanted to like give in to their uh, word and to betray someone or whatever's always happening on that show. And he said this line, I may, I may not. But at the end of the day, I'm going to do what's right or best for me. And of course, you say, fair enough, right? Like that's, that's what we do in our world. And there's just not a lot of critique to that. It's all around us. It's all about me and my life and what's right for me and what I want to do in my experience. It's my body. It's my choice. It's my career. It's my money. It's my experience. This is what I'm doing. We have all kinds of ways to just sort of feed this worship of myself. I don't like this church because it doesn't serve me. And I don't like the worship music because somehow I've been confused that they're worshiping me or whatever. I mean, it's like, <laughs> hate to break it to you, but the music is worshiping someone else. And so, but it's just easy to see how the worship and the language and the, it revolves around our own personal pref preference. It's me at the center of this story. And at the end of the day, this becomes an extremely dysfunctional place where we betray one another or where we, um, where we no longer are able to even see what Jesus is wanting to do through us and in our community. Self-worship blinds us to what God is doing in this world. Seeking self-significance is a very tempting thing. So let me set the stage for this story. They've, they've just left the Mount of Transfiguration. Big, flashy story. They've come down and had this group, this big crowd, and, and a person who needed to get healed, this child who was being uh, oppressed by a demon, and, and, and Jesus spoke into that. And then now they're going into a private moment where Jesus gets the disciples for two sort of conversations. <laughs> it's... it's it's not a great conversation because they never respond to him in this situation, right? And so uh, he gets them alone for these two conversations. And I think that he starts to probe at some of the stuff that's going on with um, their self-centeredness. And so in the first situation, Jesus speaks clearly to them about the path and the plan, what he's, what he's trying to do. He's headed to Jerusalem to die and he has a promise of resurrection in there as well. And they, they're not 100% sure what's going on, but they don't ask him about it because they're afraid. Okay? So this just crickets right after Jesus says this. And so you've got to start asking, like, what? Why, why didn't they talk to him about it? What is fear's relationship here to this? Um, but they were afraid they didn't pursue this conversation any further. Now, they, it doesn't really say, okay, just to be technical here, what they're afraid of. So you get to kind of um, imagine, you know, what you think is likely here. 
Are they afraid to ask him about this because they don't want to look bad? Because they don't know, right, like the answer to the question? I've been there. Are they afraid because they're, they're afraid that he's going to be, like, mad at them for, like, asking about it, you know? And, like, I don't know, maybe. I think it's likely that they're afraid of what the answer might be. So after Jesus makes such a clear statement, this is where we're going. This is the path that I am on. He's welcoming him in onto this path with him. But it, it looks kind of difficult. It looks like it's going to involve some drama. It's going to be hard. It's going to cause pain. What is that all about? But their fear is causing them to, of that, I think, to say, I don't even want to know. It's a very tempting place to be. And for Mark, at least for Mark, he uses fear to be something that challenges faith. It's not that fear is something in and of itself that's really wrong. I mean, some of us should have a little bit more fear, if you ask me. You know, those guys that, like, take selfies while they hang off of, like, skyscrapers and stuff. Like, that needs to be, they need more fear. Okay, that's a strange thing to do. Um, But the fear in us isn't always bad. It's fine to be afraid. But what happens when we are living in fear? That's where I think Mark wants to speak into what fear can do to our faith. What happens when fear is giving you and I permission to not follow Jesus on the path that he is asking us to follow him on? How do you point that out? Well, Mark is always kind of making the contrast here. If you just sort of read through it, you can see almost every reference that I can find, is in contrast to faith, of fear. So chapter 4, remember when Jesus calmed the storms, and they're like, whoa, who is this? What, what does he say to them? Don't be afraid. Uh, why are you afraid? Where's your faith? This is a contrast. Uh, in, in the next chapter, when Jairus' daughter is sick, and he's trying to go uh, get Jesus to heal her, and they come in, they're like, sorry, you were too late. She's passed away. Jesus says to Jairus, Don't be afraid. Believe. Have faith. Um, This happens with Herod. This happens in chapter 10, 11, and 12. Even the final verse of Mark, you can kind of see this dynamic at play. When the women see the empty tomb, what does it say? Bewildered and astonished, they left that place and did not say anything to anyone because they were afraid. So what happens when fear starts to steal our faith from us and starts to give us permission to no longer believe in the way that Christ is moving in this, in what he is calling us to do? That can start to really do damage to our relationship with God and with one another. That can feed into a self-worship like none other. As a staff, uh, we've been reading this book by Henry Nouwen, who is a Dutch um, Catholic theologian and professor uh, who passed away in the mid-90s. It's called In the Name of Jesus. And he talks about uh, gaining all kinds of fame as a thinker and a writer and a professor. He was a professor at Yale and at Harvard. And at the height of all of this, he he has some self-reflection and he says, I started to, to feel like Though everybody was, was applauding me and everybody's cheering me on and telling me how well I was doing, I felt like I didn't have a relationship with God anymore. It started to feel like numb and, 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 and doesn't, it's not really there. I started to 
notice how I was concerned with all kinds of things about the world's politics and what's happening. I feel like I to speak into all this stuff. And I wasn't even taking time to have contemplative prayer anymore. And so then he says, I went away and I prayed and I said, God, I will follow you wherever you want. Just make it clear to me where you want me to go. And he said he felt like a, just a word was given to him in that moment as clear as day. Go and be with the poor in spirit and they will heal you. And so he went to live in a place called Larsh, a Larsh community, um, which is a place they're, they're, they're all over the world, but it's a place for people with uh, mental disabilities to live. And he spent the next and the last 10 years of his life living there. And he says that in that place, he found God again. And he found people who didn't know him as Henry Nowen, but people who just knew him as Henry. And he's lived his life with them, not with this greatness, with this like fame and this thing that just made him feel good or whatever, but with people who were poor in spirit and people whom he could serve and come alongside, uh, come alongside of. And, and, and in that place, he experienced God again. That was a brave decision that he made. That was probably full of all kinds of opportunities to be afraid of what might happen and what this could do to his life and his career and, and his greatness. But it was the right choice, and it was the choice that shows us the kingdom. Now, as you see this conversation, or lack thereof, unfold with Jesus and his disciples, you got you to gotta kind of wonder, like, what would have happened if they wouldn't have let their fear cause them to be silent? If they wouldn't have let their fear cause them to look the other way and say, I don't even want to know what, what he's talking about. I mean, have you ever been afraid to even know, like when Jesus is calling us a little farther down the road towards the cross and thought, I don't even want to know what that's going to look like. It's, it's not going to make sense. I don't really know what that's going to cost me financially. Or I don't really know what that's going to look like for me socially or, or what that's going to cost. I don't even want to hear it. But what if we decided to cultivate a relationship with Jesus where we could have uh, questions and conversation and it was safe enough to say the words tell me more i'll bite how is this going to work i mean what if they would have said jesus okay tell me more would it have would there be a better person in the universe to ask for clarification on the significance of this trajectory of where they're going on how this is going to work what would he have said well, I'm telling you guys this so that you would just know ahead of time that I am not going to go to Jerusalem and get just defeated. Like I didn't know they're playing right into my hand. This is exactly what I want to have happen. When I get put to death, it's not, it's not a defeat. It's a victory. When I get put to death, you guys, I'm going to put to death the old age, the old way that has its icy, satanic grip enslaving the world and all of creation. I'm going to set them free by doing this. And as I'm raised to life, I am going to initiate the ability for new creation and for resurrection life to flow out into this world. And guess what? You get to be a part of that. You get to be a part of showing the heart of the Father to this world and showing the power of the, of the Spirit's resurrection in your life as you follow me on this path and in this pattern. 
Are you afraid of following the call of Christ towards the cross? Well, maybe today you just need to, to, to evaluate. When's the last time you asked him for encouragement? The last time you asked the Spirit to just champion it, just tell me to keep going, to encourage my heart and to show me how this is going to work and to bring that same power that you promised would be within us if we would go to the cross too. For the sake of showing the world the kingdom of heaven, ask Jesus today, tell me more. This will be a very encouraging and fruitful conversation between you and the Lord. But the disciples did not, okay? It shows to say silent for their fear. And so they moved on to Capernaum. I'm guessing like Peter's mom's house. And so in this context, Jesus says, okay, if you guys aren't going to talk to me, I'm going to talk to you. And he says, what were you guys arguing about on the road? At some point along the road, he could hear some arguments happening between this group of people that, uh, I mean, let's be honest, this whole group that he has assembled has no business uh, being together, all right? There's like a terrorist in there. There's like strictest, you know, Jewish people in there. I mean, it's like very, there's a guy who worked for Rome. And it's just, it's a very strange group. And so, of course, they're going to be arguing all the time. And this time, they were arguing about who amongst them was the greatest. This might have some sort of reference to do with, like, the way discipleship groups are uh, structured. I'm not really sure if that was invented later or if that's here. But there, there is a, um, a way to see that as it's, I think, called Talmud Kakam, if you've ever heard of that, like the, the person who's in charge of the group. Um, but either way, it doesn't matter. They're arguing about their own personal worth and greatness in this group. And so Jesus wants to speak into that. What does he say? If you want to be great, okay, if you want to be first, you must become last and a servant to all. If you're trying to develop in your discipleship with Jesus, this is 101 kingdom of heaven. You have to get this statement. He says it all over the place. If you don't understand this statement, it's just not going to give very far. Because what Jesus is doing is he is drawing a real contrast to the way that we think in our former selves, in our former framework. There is a first and a, there is a great that is described by the metrics of this world. There's a format, there's a way that you can like quantify that and show that there's greatness. And then there's greatness in the kingdom and they're not the same and they are not compatible. It is not just a one for one. You can just superimpose your worldly greatness as like a Christian and then it's, it, it, it works. That's what the Lord of the Rings is all about. You can't just take the ring and use it for the right reasons. Okay, there's, it's a totally separate game that we're playing. And this is not just a peripheral theme in the New Testament. We're always being told, take off the old self. It's, it's got to go and put on something new. It's not going to look the same. It's new. It's different. All summer, I have been just plagued by this verse in Philippians 3, where I, every day I'm thinking about this guy, Paul, who as he is kind of our t seeing like... Um, the meaning of Jesus and his death and resurrection, he then says, 
you know what? In light of that, everything that I used to think was everything that I used to think was a gain, I, I, I don't see it that way anymore. I feel like it's kind of a loss. It's like in the way. It's, it's, it's becoming to me as valuable as garbage in light of what I see in Christ. He also goes on to say in Romans 12 that there's patterns of this world that can form us. Do not be conformed to those patterns. It's, a, it's, it's your dignity as a disciple to discern what are the patterns of this world that are trying to shape me and form me into the likeness of the world's patterns. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We had to start thinking differently about things. It's, it's not just a one-to-one comparison. It's a total change and transformation in how we view greatness and how we view first. Because there's tons of patterns in this world that tell us how to be great. I'll be great because I was the first person to wear Ugg boots before it was cool. <laughs> or I, was, I listened to that band before they were famous and now I am somehow greater than you. We do it in sports. I, I am greater than you because I beat you in church softball or whatever. I've never been able to say that, but you know, you know that that's a thing. Uh, I, I am greater than you because my team beat your team. I mean, I, I was threatened once by someone who was arguing about the greatest athlete of all times between Michael Jordan and somebody named LeBron Jacobs or something. And I'm just kidding. I wasn't in the argument. I said it's Secretariat, and it's not even close. And that's what was that's what was so controversial. I mean, give me a break. What's the controversy? And uh, that horse is great. Okay, that is greatness. All right. So, how, who defines greatness for you? What defines greatness? When you like dig deep into your heart and you think, "I will be great when." Fill in the blank. When I look a certain way physically, when I achieve a certain thing financially, academically, or for my career, what is great? What will make your name great? And what will, what will make you in the position of first in your worldview? And who is telling you that? This pursuit of greatness has caused so many of us to completely become blind to what Jesus is doing in this world. And it's so addicting and it's so compelling to fight for these worldly structures of greatness. Jesus takes a child and places him in the center of the room. This is not going to be like the world. It measures greatness by how many people can serve you. But by how many people you can serve. We're like this. No social capital. Nothing that can pay you back. This is where greatness is. And I say that being a recipient of this, this type of thinking. This is how the kingdom advances in our lives. He says that this is where I will be. Not you are the one who gets to dole out the God to the children and to the marginalized or whatever. I will be there. And you are welcome to engage with 
us are welcome to welcome us into your life, into your family. And that's where you're going to experience me and the one who sent me. There's pretty high stakes here if we get this wrong. And I'm physically like in pain right now trying to decide how many stories to tell you about how this church is doing it right. I can't believe it. Going all the way back to 2008, Jen and Tony Tendero invited me to dinner. Only three blocks from here. They started a, a prayer community. Anybody who's hungry can go. And guess what? One person came. And it was great. We had a meal together with somebody from the neighborhood. And it was really compelling. And, and, and then that one person turned into two. And I promise you, over time, there were hundreds of people that were coming to this meal. All kinds of different walks of life that were represented there, full of just fruitful Christ is just discussion and, and, and engagement and relationship. This is what the kingdom looks like. And it went on for like 10 years. And you probably never know about it. But it changed me. This woman was a part of that meal who had gone to school to become a beautician. And so she said, if anybody needs a haircut here, I have this gift. I can do that for free. Every night, during the, every week during the meal, she would offer haircuts and try and help people to, to bring their beauty and dignity back and, like, and gave that to them for free. And I saw that week after week in the, the hardest conditions. And I married that woman. And she showed me what the, who is great in the kingdom. Her mom, my mother-in-law, now um, has served a quadriplegic woman for like 20 years. This gal got into a car accident. And when the, the law changed this year about how insurance works and all of that, the funding for her was taken. And my mother-in-law has served her for free, a full-time capacity. And nobody's ever going to see that and know that and see, God bless her, what she is doing to serve this person who cannot do anything for herself. This is what the kingdom of heaven looks like. There's, I look around the room, so many of you here who have adopted and fostered and brought people into your lives and who just need a stable family. People who have just raised kids in a very strange time in the history of the world. And I see that and I think that is a sometimes just full-blown thankless job where you are just slugging it out for the kingdom, just trying to help people who need help. Doctors and, and nurses and medical, in the medical field and teachers that are all here helping people see the love of Jesus by, through just sacrifice. It is rampant in this community. And I am so proud to be here and to see that and get a front row seat to what the kingdom of heaven actually looks like. Real greatness is here. It's probably not going to be liked 
and viral and trending because it's, it's the size of a mustard seed. Because it's like a, a, a treasure in a field that, that most people walk by. But it is like leaven in this world that is working its way throughout the entire thing. And we can see it because we are a people who look to the greatest one of them all, Jesus, who showed us what it's like not to be served but to serve. And he gave his life for us all. And we identify with that person. He compels us to go to the people in this world who are in need, who are marginalized. And he meets us there with a promise of resurrection as we make these like little steps towards the cross, towards feeling that pain of crucifixion in our own lives. He doesn't leave us hanging and says, I'm going to be there with you. And so if there's any way that I can encourage you this day to say, keep going, keep identifying with Jesus, keep showing the world true greatness as it is defined by Christ, then I say that, keep going. I have been changed by it because of you. So today, with that in mind, we just want to invite you to reinforce that and to take communion together. And walk that same path to the table as so many other people in this community are. And to take the elements and say, this is who I identify with. This is who inspires me. This is who I'm putting, I'm putting this into my body so that it can just uh, work its way into all my life. The body and the blood of Christ poured out and broken for you. So with that, I'd just like to invite you to pray through these things. And we're just going to take plenty of time to uh, take communion together um, with your family and with your community. Father in heaven, there's so many of us who are waking up to what you're doing in this world, and we repent for contributing in any way to the blindness that causes us to not see your heart and to see your plan. Holy Spirit, teach us about who we really are and who Jesus is. And for those of us who are here saying, tell me more, I just feel like there's a big smile on your face that you can't wait to be an empowering, encouraging presence in our lives to take it forwards, to, to take one step out of faith and to let go of the fear. Jesus, we are so proud of you as we look to you and see what you are doing in this world. We just want to follow you one step at a time on that path. And thank you for your example, for showing us your heart. You are great.